This is Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your guest today, Rob Lawless. Welcome, come choose to be curious with us. Okay, so we're switching it up this week, folks. This is Rob Lawless, better known perhaps as Rob10K's friends in his Instagram account, who has set himself the goal of having one-on-one, hour-long conversations with 10,000 people, which, uh, you know, if ever there were a curiosity enterprise, this is it. So I'm one of those conversations. And Rob, what number am I? You are, and I, t- I should have looked this up right before we hopped on, but you are number 6,041. Oh my gosh. So cool. Okay. So tell us about the inspiration for this. How did you come to want to have 10,000 conversations? Sure. I, I've always been a people person. I think that's something that's been a consistent theme throughout my life. Like I'm the youngest of three in my family and I went to Catholic school K through 12 and I went to like a fairly big grade school for Catholic school. We probably had like 800 people total, but I remember being excited to go to high school because I was like, oh, there's going to be a lot more people to meet. Uh. And my high school was small. It only had like 500 people total. But both of my older siblings had gone on to Penn State University. And I knew that that was a place that I would enjoy going as well. It's like when we moved my sister in when I was in seventh grade, it felt like a home to me. And one of the biggest draws for me was 40,000 students. I was like, okay, now I get to go to an even bigger place where there's more people. And for whatever reason, I always had a lot of comfort in that because it was like an adventure to get to know new people. And I'm a social person, so I hit the ground running at Penn State. I So I started school August, and this was back in 2009. And by September, I was on a committee for the Penn State Dance Marathon, which is a fundraiser <laughs> for the fight against pediatric cancer. Uh-huh. And that was my first home of friends at school. And, and then I joined spring semester fraternity that was restarting. I did Habitat for Humanity trips over spring breaks. My sophomore year, I became a tour guide for prospective students. And I would do all of these things every year, and I would just add one more thing in. And my senior year, I was a homecoming captain. So the campus became very small. Like my friend, our junior year, was he was the student body president, so obviously knew a lot of people as well. And I remember when we were seniors, we were sitting at one of the bars that is kind of like on the outside, like on the sidewalk, and we had a competition to see who knew more people that walked by, <laughs> the student body president or me. And it was like very head-to-head. And... I just love that environment and most of the value, I would say like 60, 70% of the value that I got out of my college education was not my degree or the classes. It was the relationships I formed with the people and the memories I created with them. So for me, it was an odd notion that you would graduate college, go into the working world and then stop creating authentic connection. Like we all do it, but I, it makes no sense to me because I was like, why would I stop the thing that drove the most value in my life? So I graduated in 2013 with my finance degree and I went and worked at Deloitte Consulting. And when I was there, I was struggling with like sitting in a cubicle, working 12 hours a day, not feeling like I was working on something I was passionate about. And again, not having this connection. So I'd minored in accounting and entrepreneurship and the entrepreneurship side of me always drove my curiosity and adventure and so at Deloitte, I was like, well, I, I need to think of something that will allow me to escape the corporate life path and not have to sit into a cubicle and, until I'm 65. And 
I eventually left Deloitte, went to a tech startup in Philly. And when I was there, I was like, okay, well, actually, I thought of this when I was at Deloitte, the idea to meet 10,000 people. But I took action on it when I was at the startup because I moved into Philly for that job, grew up in the suburbs, but moved into Philly for that job. And I essentially saw Philly as my new campus. And I was like, okay, I can get to know people here like I did at Penn State. And if I want to do it in a way that could potentially come become my career, I'm going to make it into this nice, clean cut, but also a very daunting goal. So I started the project in November of 2015. And it's been a ride since then. But yeah, I'll stop there because that's just kind of the gist of how I got started. So why 10,000? It is a daunting number. Why, why that one? I think because if it wasn't 10,000, we probably wouldn't be here talking about it today. Like if it was yeah. 1,000, it would have been a cool side project. I say if it was 100, it would have been a, a New Year's resolution or something like that. But 10,000 was so large that I always explain it like Seth Godin has a book called The Purple Cow. He's a marketer and he says, if you drive down the street and you pass a cow, on a farm, like you're not going to think twice. But if you drive down the street and you pass a purple cow, you're going to get out of your car and you're going to take pictures and you're going to upload it to Instagram and send it to your friends. And it's like, how do you turn the cow purple? How do you turn connection purple for me? Instead of doing one connection or 10, you do 10,000. So knowing that I wanted it to be like this entrepreneurial journey, I think I was just like, let's shoot for a really high number that will get people interested in it. Well, it certainly worked. It certainly worked. So what does a typical, I mean, what does it take to have 10,000 conversations? What's your typical day look like? Now I try to meet four people every day. And That's a lot. Yeah. When I first, I mean, when I started, I was working full time. So I would just meet people after work or on the weekends. And then eight months after I started the project, the tech startup that I worked for was acquired. So I was laid off at that point And then I decided to jump into this full time. And I thought, I'll just I'll do it two to three months full time. And if it's going well, I'll continue. And if not, I'll go back to consulting and I'll work my way up to like a six-figure salary or whatever. And it just continued to go well. So at that time, I was meeting five people a day. I would meet people at 9 a.m., 11 a.m., 1 p.m., 4 p.m., and 6 p.m. Wow. So 9 to 7 p.m., I would be in meetings with people. And it was funny because outsiders would be like, oh, well, you're just meeting people. Like, what are you doing with all of your free time? I was like, well, I'm oh, no. <laughs> passionately towards this mission that I have. So it was a lot then. And then I ended up moving out to Los Angeles to crash with a friend once my lease in Philly ended because I was doing it full time and I couldn't afford to rent and do that. And my friend was kind enough to host me in LA and out there is just with traffic and stuff. I, I went to four meetings a day and I, I stuck with that up until a couple of years ago. Then I dropped down to three meetings a day to put more time into pursuing a speaking career. But now that that's kind of stabilized, I've jumped back up to four meetings a day. So nowadays, typically, I meet people at 8 a.m., 10 a.m., 1 p.m., and 3 p.m. And so it's like every meeting, there's an hour of writing about that person and sharing their story. And then I essentially have a, an hour for lunch. So it's basically an eight to five job with an hour for lunch. And then beyond the meeting people, I am... A public speaker now. That's how I support myself financially on the journey. I'm in the process of putting together a book proposal to write a book. I have a, an agent that I signed with earlier this year. There was a lot of like trying to finagle partnerships in the earlier years. So 
the meeting it's like if you look at the iceberg right the meeting people and the posts on instagram is the tip of it right and then everything else is the underneath right so one of the things that i have admired in in sort of learning a little bit more about you is that you don't actually have a formal interview format as you say you're just opening the door for no particular reason what has surprised you about this process i well the um I don't like not maybe not the the but in general what surprised me is just how much I don't know about life mm. and how much none of us know about life and of course we we get wisdom as we get older and stuff right but it's just fascinating to me like I thought that I had a good representation of the world and then the more I met people the more I realized how much I didn't know and it's because you just start to understand how wide the spectrum of life paths is and how wide the spectrum of people's experiences are. So I used to meet everyone in person. I met like the first almost 3,300 people in person. And then I started doing video calls once COVID happened. And through that, I started connecting with people around the world. And I've met people from like 90 different countries. And I've met people from countries that I didn't know existed before starting my project. Yeah. And I'm fairly confident I probably never would have known that they existed and I probably would have never known that certain musical artists existed or certain movies or, or certain diseases or illnesses that people had. And all of this different stuff was kind of in the darkness until I started connecting with people around me and learning about their experiences. So it's just been surprising. And now I, I am aware that I have a very limited mindset or a very limited perspective on the world, but at least I know I'm taking action on expanding it. That's a real gift to have that insight. You know, a lot of people go a lot more of their lives <laughs> before they reach that. Um, that's very cool. So people come to you. I mean, you obviously have to promote yourself and push yourself out there, but ultimately it's somebody's choice to kind of reach out to you for this. Do you think the experience would be different if you were cold approaching 10,000 people? I mean, I was cold approaching 10,000 people in the beginning. Like That's true, yeah. I would say I probably met 65-ish people before anyone reached out to me. Uh, okay. And, and then it, it was a lot of me approaching people in the beginning. And then I was talking about this yesterday. I feel like my project went from, it just kind of evolved from people laughing at it in the beginning to people questioning it to people being curious about it, to people being inspired by it. And that has been a really cool journey to, to walk along. That's so interesting. Capture that somewhere, because to me, that's, you know, they talk about the stages of death and, and, and denial and all that sort of thing. And I feel like you've just hit on the stages of kind of the communal response to sort of innovation or what's unusual. There's kind of mocking, there's distrust, then there's certain curiosity. And then there's like, oh, wow, this is the coolest thing ever. Yeah. So what have you learned about making people comfortable from all of these different places for, a, for an hour-long conversation? Have you, There's got to be an art to that. Yeah, I think part of it is because sometimes I'll feel people be nervous coming yeah. into the conversation. And I find that in those situations, I try to actively make myself less nervous or more relaxed because I think we feed off of each other's energy. And I think sometimes if people come in nervous and then I get nervous because of that, then they get nervous and it just spirals. 
But if I can sense that they're nervous and I can kind of sit back a little bit and slow myself down and, and have sort of a calming tone to my voice and approach to my questions, it will put them at ease. I think another thing, probably one of the more important things is the fact that I don't have a structure because I always send people this article, PSA, I'm not interviewing people. And I think it helps put them at ease because the idea of going into a conversation with a friend is very different than the idea of going into an interview about your life where you feel like you have to answer these structured questions. So I think that's helpful. And I try to tell people like, we're not here to talk about anything in particular. We're just here to connect and the conversation can go this way or that way or up or down, whatever. It's all the right way. And I think when people understand that, it puts them at ease. And and just beyond that, I think I have grown to have like a lot of restraint around myself when it comes to certain things. And I think there's a lot of nuance. You probably understand it as a podcast host. Sometimes there's really intriguing things that you as a person would love to dive deeper into because it's almost like the gossip or the tea or whatever. But there's a line that people are comfortable talking about. And sometimes even if you're really curious about that, you have to show restraint and respect for someone's story. And I think when you can show that restraint, it, it helps them think, okay, this person's not trying to dive deep or get anything out of my story. They're just here to connect. And almost in a different way than people end up opening up more. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and I'm joined today by Rob Lawless, who has set himself a goal of spending an hour in one-on-one conversations with 10,000 people. You had you posted for a while sort of tips that you were kind of maybe picking up from from your conversations or just as you were kind of understanding more about what happens in our interactions with one another. And and I was impressed at the tenor of those tips. And I and I was sort of jotting down the ones that kind of caught my eye, that was sort of interesting. And then when I went back and looked at them, I thought, well, this is really interesting because that's my it's my take on them, right? But it was often the ones where you talked about treating the conversation like an investment and your responsibility for the quality of the conversation. And it reminded me of something that Jill Bolte-Taylor says, which is, you know, take responsibility for the energy you bring into the room, which is, oh boy, what a good little reminder for each of us as we walk into a space, literal or, or figurative. Something else you said really resonated for me because my show is a combination of I talk to researchers, academics, you know, people who write and think every day aggressively, beautifully, articulately about curiosity. And then people who have projects that I consider curiosity enterprises like yours. And then people who have never really thought about curiosity at all until I ask them to reflect on their work and life through this particular lens. And people are often really nervous to, you know, sit down with me and maybe it's the first time they've been interviewed. And and I keep saying to people, you know, you are the expert on your life and what you think. You know, my goal is to hear that story and and amplify it, hold it up. And it is interesting what just reminding people of the value of the story that they do have to tell has to the rest of us 
for calming everybody down coming into the conversation, but also just to say to people, no, your your story is valuable. We get used to the idea that celebrities have stories. It's really nice to know that 10,000 people have stories, 100,000, 10 million, 100 million have stories that are worth listening to. I think that's what I admire most about what you're doing. Yeah, it's it's. I get that all the time too. People will reach out to me and say, I'd love to meet for your project, but I'm not interesting like everyone else you meet. Yeah. And I, I think it's funny because I'm like, all right, well, you're saying that about the person who also just reached out to me and said they weren't interesting. And then they're going to read your story and say, I'm not as interesting as this person. I think oftentimes we just don't give ourselves enough credit. I always say too, like everyone's story is interesting when you distill it into five sentences, like I do to share on Instagram or the lesson there is like, we all have interesting parts of our story. And I don't even think that we need to be interesting as people. And like, we don't need to be, I don't know. I think now to me, like an interesting person is someone who has really great relationships with their family or like someone who's working on something that they're passionate about. It doesn't have to be, these traditional milestones of success that equal interest. I've just not seen that through my project too. Like I think one of the interesting, funny, uh, I use that word, just one of the things I've observed about my project and the people I meet is very rarely are we talking about like financial success. It has just not mattered yeah. in the conversations that I've had with people and it's not really even come up. Sometimes it's, it's, it's cool like if they had some story to hear about how they did that. And I, I like discussing for other people who are on their own path, like, how do you, what's, how did you like make income off your thing? Cause I like sharing my story and understanding theirs because we can learn from each other. But yeah, when I've met people who are wealthy, like I didn't even know about it. They didn't talk about it. It just was less relevant as opposed to the quality of their character. Yeah. Yeah. So I was going to ask that you've sort of alluded to it there. Maybe I've, I wonder how the project has changed you. In many ways, I think I go back to the awareness piece, just my awareness of society. So we were talking about analogies before chatting with each other. And one of the ones that I view in my mind is like, think about the world being just total darkness. You know how they have like electrical grids that they show? Think about like a Verizon or AT&T when they show the coverage of the United States and they have all these Mm -hmm. different areas lit up. Uh It's kind of like the areas that are known to us are lit up. So what's lit up are communities that we grew up in and like our faith communities and our friendships and whatnot and the people we knew at school. But a lot of the other world exists in darkness. And when I started to meet people, it was like, oh, I turned on a couple lights in Brazil and I've turned on some lights in Iran and I've turned on lights in India and Norway and all these different places. So I just started to become more aware. And when you turn on the light, then you can see what's in that area. And an, an example of that is like meeting people here in Philadelphia after I meet them, I'm aware of them. So then I see them out and about on the streets. And I've likely walked past them before, but they were in the darkness because I didn't know their story. Now that I know their background, I'm aware of them and I see them. So it's changed what I see in the world because I'm just more aware of it. And I think from a personal standpoint, it's changed what I'm, I guess, my sense of gratitude. So I always say like success for me is I measure it by the amount of time I spend with the people that I care about in my life. And I always say I've met too many people who've lost parents or who've lost siblings or who've lost loved ones in my project to 
not face the fact that I have a limited amount of time with the people I care about. So knowing that it's just changed what I place value in. Like I could care less about a fancy car or a big house. And I think studying finance in college. And when I was 18, I had this uh, goal to be a millionaire by the time I was 28. And (laughs) it's just that goal seems so naive to me now where the, yeah, what I place value on has changed as a result of the project. I love that analogy. It's really a beautiful way of thinking about it. And, you know, another one of your tips that I had pulled out that I really liked was sort of link people. You know, once you know people, link them. And I think that that's the power of your, the light analogy, the grid, right? I did a fascinating interview with Danny Bassett, who's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, actually, and works in network theory. And he has applied this whole network theory and systems theory to the idea of curiosity and kind of the way that we build our knowledge networks. And we have different styles, but it's all about nodes and rods. It's all about points and and things that connect those points. And to your point, having the individual spots of light is a is a beautiful thing. And I think it illuminates things that we wouldn't otherwise see. I think, see, I think you're absolutely right about that. But I think the gift of your tip about linking people is that the network and the world really does become lighter, brighter, more connected by connecting those dots and recognizing that there's relationship between them. It's one of the things I do with the show. I actually really like connecting people. I love it when people call and they're like, would you connect me to so-and-so? Or, you know, one guest wants to meet another guest. I do virtual happy hours for my guests, just so you're warned. Like you're now yeah. part of the curiosity community. Right. It's just, you're yeah. stuck with us. And you just never know what's going to come of those things, right? It starts out as a single interview. It starts out as an hour-long conversation. But you just never know where those connections will take you. So I think that's really lovely. Nice. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's just, it's one of my favorite parts of connection is the ripple effects. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Well, speaking of connecting, and you and you just talked about an analogy. You want to join me in my big jar of wannabe analogies? You game for this? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, okay. So I have this literal big jar inside our slips of paper. I'm going to take out three: one for you, one for me, one for the audience. And we're going to make an analogy to whatever is on these slips of paper. Oh, interesting. Okay. Mine is clown. I was curiosity like a clown. Yours is lion. And I have one for the audience. So do you want to go first or do you want me to do it? Uh, you can go first because I'll, I'll, I'll get a little sense of it from you. Okay. Um, how is curiosity like a clown? Uh, well, I mean, you know, clowns are entertaining curiosity. I think of as being kind of entertaining, but I also think, you know, some people are kind of afraid of clowns. They kind of spook people. Mm -hmm. And I think curiosity, I mean, people are afraid of curiosity. It kind of spooks them. And, um, I would like to think that a good clown reads the room and sort of understands how to get people to step into the laughter and that curiosity I mean, sort of to what you said, I mean, curiosity well deployed is an invitation that dissolves the discomfort. That's that's how I'll say curiosity is like a clown. How is curiosity like a lion? 
Yeah, it's funny because one of the first things I thought was like, oh, curiosity killed the cat and a lion is a cat. But I feel like that's <laughs> not applicable here because I, I think of two things. One, lions being like the king of the jungle. And I think curiosity, like lions, is probably one of the greatest strengths that we can have as a person. I think if you want to be the king, queen of the jungle in whatever capacity in your life, I think you have to have curiosity. And I think you have to have that openness. And another thing that I think about when it comes to lions is I think curiosity can be calculated. And I think that's probably not a way that a lot of people view it. But you think about like lions, the lionesses getting together for the hunt. It's a very calculated thing. And it's not like they're just running out up to an elephant or whatever. They're very strategic about how they go to take it down. And I think at least in my experience, I have all of this curiosity and I funneled it into this system of meeting four people a day. And I call it structured spontaneity. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm routine, and that's my whole thing is I've made connection an intentional part of my life rather than something that's just going to happen spontaneously here or there. I've been able to tap into that curiosity four times a day, every day, and like turn on that well and get the water from it rather than just stumbling upon like an oasis. So yeah, the strategic part of it makes me think of lions. I like that. I like that a lot. And yeah, I like the combination of the sort of slightly wild, untamed, powerful, but also strategic. Nice. Very nice. And audience, yours is crutches. How <laughs> is curiosity like crutches? Let us know on social media. Hashtag analogy. Well, Rob, thank you so much for this. This has really been fun and kudos on such a very cool project. Yeah, thank you for giving me a platform to talk about it. I'm always giving other people a platform, which I absolutely love, and I appreciate your work in doing the same because I'm sure there's a lot of overlap in the joy your guests get out of it and then the value you get out of it as a host. So thank you. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Thank you for joining us today. You can find me and all my shows on my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you'll follow me here, there, and on social media at Choose to be Curious, where you can share your crutches analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my guest, Rob Lawless. It was fun to spend our hour satisfying both our curiosities. You can find Rob on Instagram at Rob's 10K Friends. Links on my website. Thanks too to Sean Ballack for our theme music. And this is Headland Flyer by The Balloonist via Blue Dot Sessions. I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, choose to be curious. So... I always like starting with like, where are you calling in from? How old were you when you left Philadelphia? Your career, do you see it as a big part of your identity or a small part of your identity? Um, it's a part. I mean, I don't think you can know who I am without having that information. But that uh, information alone is insufficient to know who I am. Yeah, I love the way that you talked about that I will use that in my speaking speaking engagements going forward because I always tell people like our work version is just a slice of who we are and if someone is like hey it's 30% of who I am 
if you're a leader in your workplace, you're not recognizing 70% of that person. How did you find my project again? I found you through Ken Woodward. Oh, okay. Who's nice. here in DC. Yeah, he's like walking every street. Yeah. I follow him and then somewhere in his stuff, I was like, oh, this is cool. Let me find out more about that. So that's how I learned.